at this time we'll gather to hear some of the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings on mindfulness and wisdom and love and compassion. Today I'm going to be talking about mindfulness and the talk is loosely um, centered around the Satipatthana Sutra known as the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And this is one of the seminal texts of the Buddhist tradition and um, one of the most kind of complete instructions in mindfulness and um, how mindfulness leads to freeing the heart and the mind. So that's our task today. I hope we can finish in 50 minutes. (laughs) We might need a few more days. In our practice, what we are attempting is to be alive and fully human. So not human in as this part's okay and that part's not, this I can meet, this I won't, this is acceptable, this is unacceptable, but fully human. This, you could say the whole shebang or the full catastrophe of being human. You're getting tastes of that today. We get tastes of that our whole lives, of course. But here on retreat, we're intentionally um, turning our intention towards embracing our full humanity. Trungpa Trungpache says, meditation is very simple and extremely down to earth to the extent that it's irritatingly down-to-earth. <laughs> Through the down-to-earth practice of meditation, you can see the colors of your own existence. The earth begins to come back to you rather than that you are getting messages from heaven, so to speak. <laughs> so we, we often start uh, meditation with this hope that um, we're going to transcend the human experience, that somehow we're going to get out of here. <laughs> Get out of this mess, this complication that um, most of you have met today, I'm assuming, (laughs) this complication of being human. But if our practice is um, genuine, what it's going to do is it's going to put us into contact with our humanity, with human experience. And human experience, generally speaking, is somewhat messy. It's somewhat complicated. However, through this direct contact with our human experience, we work out our enlightenment. We work out our awakening. We work out our freedom. And it's really the only place we can do it. We can't think our way there. We can't think our way um, to freedom. We more feel our way to freedom or experience our way to freedom. You could say it's a, um, it goes against every way that we think that we've learned to um, uh, make sense of the world. So we're used to making sense of the world through our conceptual mind, but this is more, um, you even could say, an intuitive journey of sensing our way to freedom. And so for many of you today, probably for eight out of nine of you, your retreat experience is not matching your expectation. (laughs) 
and most likely it's messier. And um, don't underestimate um, the power of digital detox. It, it uh, is intense sometimes if we're used to this uh, constant connectivity and, and um, distractedness of, of the digital world. It can be a little bit like detox coming here and, and uh, letting that go. And yet you're still all here, this is good. <laughs> what we notice is, a, is um, the complication of the human mind and heart and body, right? The drama. And what we're going to talk about is, is um, getting simpler. We live in a society that values uh, complication. We're going to go the other direction. You're going to come out of here having accomplished nothing. That'll be great. Instead of being more complicated, perhaps we'll be just a little bit simpler, more grounded, more free. A little bit freer of the, of the stress of complexity within. So the four foundations of mindfulness are the four places we can pay attention to mindfulness, the ground of mindfulness. The sutra has a way of um, organizing our meditation, you could say, organizing our, um, our journey. And the four foundations are the body. You may have noticed we've started there quite a bit the body, um, feeling tone, which I'll explain what that is when we get there, the mind, the mind-heart, and the, fifth one, uh, the fourth one is, um, you could say, uh, wisdom or understanding, the patterning of the mind-heart. So before I get into these four foundations, let's just talk a little bit more about what mindfulness is. And as we said this morning, um, it's deep. There's so much we can learn about it and um, so many different ways of explaining it. So I'm just going to put out a few and, and over the week we may be exploring um, some of the other flavors As Joanna said, the root of the word mindfulness is to remember. So mindfulness remembers to wake up. And then this waking up, uh, this experience of mindfulness, I feel it as a kind of intimacy with what is happening. So we're, we're resting in connection with or intimacy with whatever is known when we wake up. Whatever is known in one of those moments of wakefulness. Suzuki Roshi calls mindfulness a soft readiness. I like that. It has the right flavor. There's, there, there needs to be a flavor of friendliness in there somewhere. Doesn't have to be a gushy friendliness. Don't have to be best friends, but 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 uh, an inclination 
towards a, a, perhaps you could say a kind of warmth or kindness or connection or acceptance, a soft readiness. And to me, that word readiness has this willingness to be open to what comes, what may come, what will come. Which the truth is, we never know what that will be. That's why presence is so intense. And yet we cultivate this ability to have this soft readiness to receive whatever the moment brings, whatever this moment of human experience is. So there's this willingness in mindfulness for intimacy with life, with the full range of human experiences. Sometimes I feel like we approach mindfulness a little bit like a hunter. We're like going out, we're like, I'm going to grab that moment, and I'm going to grab that moment, and I'm going to get it, right? I'm going to get it right, I'm going to get it. And um, so there's a little bit of this um, hunter kind of capturing the moment energy. And I'm going to recommend that we consider being farmers instead, having a kind of a farming um, mentality, which means that we um, prepare the earth, we do the work, we tend the soil, and then we let things grow in their own time and their own way. And the thing with being a farmer, right, is that at first it doesn't seem like anything's happening. It's a kind of faith. And probably right now some of you need some faith. It's faith like, oh, keep tending the soil, keep coming, keep um, letting mindfulness wake up and remember to be here, keep supporting that. And then seeds will sprout. We just don't know when. So there's this kind of receptive listening with mindfulness. I think of the farming as more of a listening and a, feels more receptive to me than hunting. <laughs> One of my favorite ways to look at mindfulness is um, something I read uh, by George Washington Carver, who was a famous botanist and healer. He was born as a slave in the 1850s. And then um, as he was a free man, he, he really showed his genius for healing with plants. And, and he was asked, like, how did you learn what you know about healing in plants? And he said, all the flowers talk to me and so do hundreds of living things in the woods. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. So watching and loving, that's that warm quality that I, that I mentioned with mindfulness. Watching and loving everything. And, and, and the receptive nature of, of receiving the, the teachings from the plants. 
as I said early, we are receiving the teachings from our, the own material of our lives here. We're listening to our experience, rather than bossing our experience around. So most of the time we boss ourselves around. That's our usual way of being. Like, you should do this, you should be like that, you shouldn't be like this. <laughs> boss our bodies around, boss our hearts around, <laughs> boss our minds around. Our hearts don't really like to be bossed around. Our minds not so much either. Our bodies don't listen. <laughs> so we're going to try something a little different. We're going to try listening and responding. One last little um, expression I, I learned about mindfulness. This was from Bhante Gunaratama. He said that um, there's a word aparnada, which is related to sati, mindfulness. And aparnada means absence of madness. <laughs> So I think of mindfulness as this quality that 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 um, gives us the opportunity for a sane and sensible relationship with life, or with this world, or with ourselves, or with others. Somebody called Buddhism advanced common sense. <laughs> We're working on advanced common sense here, and an absence of madness. All right, let's move on to the four foundations. The first foundation of mindfulness is the body. The Satipatthana Sutra goes on for a number of pages. And of the four foundations, body by far has the most pages of, uh, of discourse. Super important. And in these pages of discourses on um, mindfulness of the body, there are a variety of practices. There's mindfulness of the breath. There's mindfulness of posture, whether we're sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, to know what our posture is, to be present in our posture. There's mindfulness of movement, our full awareness of, of um, all of our activities of the day, so of eating and, and washing and reaching and um, using the toilet, everything is listed. <laughs> it's um, basically the idea is to um, be grounded in our bodies throughout the day and to be aware throughout the day through that connection with our bodies. And then there's also different meditations on the parts of the body and the elemental nature of the body and um, death meditation, corpse, corpse some contemplation. We're not going to do that one this week. We'll skip that one. Um, but basically there's this wide variety of, of instructions and um, they're all about getting really intimate with what does it mean to be embodied eh, as a human in this world, connecting with that. 
very thorough. (laughs) So what we start to see and what you've probably noticed today is how little of our time we're actually embodied. Most of our time, by a large margin, for most people, we are um, living in um, our thought world, our thought-created world. A world of stories and conjectures and memories and wants and not wants, (laughs) rehearsals, um, judgments, planning, There's a certain comfort in that world. There's always the hope in that world that somehow we can control reality, make it be the way we want it to be. That kind of underlies all of it. And yet, for its comfort, there's a certain alienation from our deepest being, um, when we're caught in those worlds in the mind. It's not that thinking's a problem, but when we're caught and trapped in our own minds. I mean, how many of you have had that experience today of being trapped in your own mind? Like something you're just just obsessing about and kind of has you, right? Doesn't feel like freedom. And so the the opportunity exists to um, connect with the body as a way to start to have um, some choice, you could say, about where we're going to live. Now, you can't control if you go off into thought. Please know that. That is not what we're trying to do, because you're just going to get frustrated if you try to do that. But when mindfulness kicks in, which it will eventually, and you oh, oh, I'm here, When, when you wake up, then there is um, this opportunity to drop the story and to come back to the body as a way to reestablish presence, to come out of that trance, as we talked about. And as we do that, kind of like each time we do that, we are lessening the force or the power that thinking has over us. And we're increasing um, our ability to have choice and increasing our ability to arrive in presence in what I call sense-based reality, the reality of body feeling, of smelling, seeing, hearing, tasting, the sensory body. And we start, we, we develop, sometimes we have trepidation about coming into this body because it's, it's a wild world and um, it's a taste sometimes we develop. But over time, th- this sense of homecoming uh, strengthens when we are able to connect with our sense-based reality. It's a sense of being deeply home on the earth, in our body, in, in this world, It's a homecoming. And it can be a kind of enchanted homecoming 
One teacher described meditation as re-enchantment. As we, as we connect um, more with this sensory reality, um, you could say life becomes more alive. Or life as lived through us becomes more alive. And um, it's like was said in the Q&A this morning, kind of this joyous interest in just the body, feeling the aliveness of the body. Like, oh, I didn't know that each side was different, and I didn't know that. It's like, ah, oh. we had this thought about the body, but the thought's kind of dead. It's just a concept. Concepts are rather dead. They're all decided, wrapped up, and finished. <laughs> but the actual connection is very alive. So maybe tasting today. Like, we think we know what rice tastes like, or rice noodles taste like, but does it taste the same at the beginning of the bite and the end of the bite and the middle of the bite? Or peanut sauce. How does that taste for a full bite? The concept is, I know what peanut sauce tastes like, but the experience is, is, is magical. One time last winter, I was sitting at this marsh I like to sit at near my house, and there was some snow, and I had this thought, oh, look at the pretty white snow. Concept, white snow. <laughs> Conceptual mind, dead, <laughs> done. And then something like a flip switched. I got mindful. You could say I just landed in mindfulness, and suddenly the snow was not white. It was mauve and gray and blue and green, and sparkling with all these colors. I didn't see that because I was in the concept of white snow, and so I saw white snow. But when mindfulness was there, it's like I saw what was really there. And then what I realized is snow doesn't really have any color at all. It depends on the moment and the circumstances and how the light hits and, and whatever. But it was magical because the snow became alive then. Somebody asked, uh, the teacher Munindra in Burma, asked him uh, why he practiced mindfulness. He said, so that when I'm walking down the road, I won't miss the little purple flowers growing by the wayside. Enchantment, intimacy, connection. Sometimes I like to mention when I was in Burma uh, practicing one year with the Burmese Sayadaws, um, one Burmese Sayadu Lakana gave two talks. He gave two 75-minute talks on the pain one feels in the buttocks when sitting for a long time. <laughs> two 75-minute talks. <laughs> It's like, this is how intimate one can get, so how interested one can get in, in connecting with life. He was really interested in that experience. 
So that's one of the kind of the beauties of embodiment and the beauties of, of resting in the sense experience. Life becomes more alive. And then out of that, with life more alive, we start to see the true nature of life. So we see that being grounded in the body, we learn about the way things are. We learn about what are known as the three characteristics, which Chaz is going to talk about one night, probably. Um, the, The three characteristics of life, impermanence, unreliability, and no self. Concepts, we don't learn it there, because concepts are (laughs) white snow. We're not seeing impermanence. In the moment of seeing snow and the sparkling and the changing of the colors, yes, we're seeing impermanence, because there's that connection with the alive experience itself. You've certainly seen impermanence today, right? It's just it's wild. It's always changing. This is like the core truth that develops wisdom is things change. And we are meant to do the most intimate investigation of that. And connecting with the body and sense experience, we will. The second truth that 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 experience is unreliable because of change, and that if we peg our hopes on experience being a certain way, we are going to suffer. We are going to be stressed out micromanaging the universe. I bet you've noticed that today, too. And the third characteristic of not-self, we start to understand that if everything is changing, right here, everything is changing, what do we kind of own as our true self? What, what is this emotion me? Or is this emotion an experience that arises because of conditions and then passes away? And that helps us to start to hold everything so much more lightly. with so much less stress. This is Buddhist stress reduction. (laughs) All that by connecting with the body. Not thinking about it, we see it, seeing it directly. So there's this invitation with the first foundation to connect with the body, the breath, our sense experience, tasting, hearing, smelling, seeing, body senses, touch. The second foundation is Oh, what is known as feeling tone. And this is the experience of each moment as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When I first heard this, I was like, why out of four does this little thing about whether something feels pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, why does it get like its own whole foundation, its own out of four? It's such a piddly little thing. (laughs) But what the reason why it gets its own foundation is because this is where 
suffering starts. <laughs> this is the beginning of the problems. Not the feeling tone, but what we do about the feeling tone. So in this wild sensory experience of being human, we start to notice that there are pleasant, that we have pleasant experience, we have unpleasant experience, and we have neutral experience. And we start to notice that when there's pleasant experience, what do we do? We try to hang on to it, right? And when it's unpleasant, we try to get rid of it. And when it's neutral, we space out. We don't care. <laughs> and because pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is changing all day, we're like ping-pong balls. We're getting ping-ponged around. We're trying to like keep the pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant, take a nap during the neutral. <laughs> and... Um, is stressful. It's stressful. We try to manage the universe and we get stressed out. So we start to become mindful of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Now we often think that a thing is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But what we find is that it's not a thing, it's the moment's experience of how something lands on us. So um, one of my favorite things in the whole world, or one of my very pretty high up there, is listening to wood thrushes. I don't know how many of you know what a wood thrush sounds like. Chaz, you're good at, can you? <laughs> Maybe not in front of a group. The other day he did a great wood thrush. <laughs> but they, they sound like flutes if you hear them in the woods. <laughs> Sorry, Chaz, that was a little bit much to ask. Um, <laughs> they sound like flutes off in the woods. They, they live in the woods. And you can, you'll hear them around here probably if you go out in the woods some. And they're just beautiful, um, ethereal, otherworldly. So they seem to be, I say in the kind of climate change um, lottery, they seem to be doing very well. Um, there seem to be more and more of them, and I'm not the only one who's noticed that. Um, the other day at my house, there were like three of them, and they sang all day. And like late afternoon, I turned to my partner and I'm like, I can't believe it, but I'm finding the sound of a wood thrush unpleasant. <laughs> it was, so it's not the wood thrush it was just the circumstances that all day I'd been listening to these wood thrushes like back and forth back and forth and um, it, it changed right, so it's not the wood thrush's fault it's how the experience landed on me And what we start to find is that this mindfulness of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral gives us some options about whether we are going to go into this reactivity or can start giving us some options about what, whether we're going to um, start to go into grasping if it's pleasant or um, aversion if it's unpleasant or neutral. By the way, I just want you to know this talk is going to be online after the retreat so you don't have to remember everything I say. So just, you know, like let it come in and do what it'll do. <laughs> Move on and uh, there's a chance later if you wanted to remember something.
So, uh, so let's say you're sitting here and um, your back starts to hurt, your upper back, right? So that's um, our sensory experience, the, the feelings, uh, um, sensations in the upper back, burning, pulling, aching. Normally what happens, we connect with that and we hate it, right? Aversion. It's unpleasant. So we can start to know it's unpleasant. And we can see if there's an option besides for hating it. There might not be in the moment. You might just hate it. (laughs) But is there any kind of option to relate to it a different way that isn't stressful? Like, is there the possibility maybe of just softening for one second? I'm serious. One second of connecting to that human experience without exiling it. And so maybe for half a second or one second, it happens, and then the mind goes, no, I hate it. <laughs> that's great. You're mindful of that hating it then, right? Like, that's your experience. Ah, can, can we be okay with hating it? The great thing about mindfulness practice is your experience doesn't have to be any different than it is. Whatever it is, you get to connect with it. So, aching up or back unpleasant, hating it, softening, hating, softening, can't stand this, move. It's all doable. You can do it. But what we're interested in is, is this, can there be another way to relate that isn't stressful? Or, pleasant, is there another way to relate to pleasant that's not stressful in the holding on? Right? So, lunch is a big deal on retreat. There are not a whole lot of entertainment opportunities. Lunch is one of them. So you're eating lunch. Tastes really good. And then there's this kind of background stress. Uh, It's pleasant, right? There's this background stress, which isn't pleasant, (laughs) the taste is pleasant, this background stress is like, oh, how long is this going to go on? How long can I make this go on? It's subtle. You might not really hear it, but but the stress is kind of there. It's like, oh, I don't want lunch to end. I have to go back and sit again. (laughs) So it's like, can I hang on to lunch? (laughs) Right? That's That's grasping, and it's stressful. And so you can notice, oh, taste, it's pleasant, hmm, can it stop there, do I have to hold on, you can be curious, and he's like, yeah, I have to hold on, I really want this, (laughs) or be like, oh, just pleasant, just now. So we, we investigate and get curious about all of this, neutral. How do, so neutral, we usually disconnect. What's it like to be with something neutral? Your anchor's meant to be fairly neutral. So it's like, can I be interested in neutral? It's like another breath. It's like I know what a breath is by now. Can I graduate to something else, right? So it's like, hmm, so disconnect, not interested. 
that's a habitual to neutral. It's like, is there some way to be interested in another breath? We think, you know, we get kind of bored, right? It's like, ugh, boring. (laughs) Neutral can sometimes give us our first little bit of taste of freedom in that with neutral, there's nothing to grasp or push away. So it actually is meant to teach us rest. Can we be interested in another step, another breath? Maybe yes, maybe not right now. Maybe right now we're going to be bored. Okay, boredom. What's boredom like? Boredom's like anathema, right? It's like boredom? No, I'll do anything but boredom. You get to practice boredom here. So I'm already talking about the third foundation, the mind. The mind-heart. So basically, what is the quality of the mind and the heart? And basically, in the instructions, it's like what mind states are present, what are known as mind states. Sometimes we call them emotions. But in Buddhism, it's larger than emotions. It's, it is all what we would call emotions, joy, sorrow, anger, fear, excitement. But also it's restlessness, sleepiness, clarity, calm, concentration. So what is the flavor of the mind and the heart? That's part of this full catastrophe and it's part of what we're interested in. And what's great about this is that we don't have to make it be different than it is. I'm going to actually read and give you a gift for those of you who haven't heard uh, a Buddha Sutra. I'm going to give you a flavor of them. And um, it's kind of different. <laughs> this is from the Satipatthana Sutra. And how practitioners, does a practitioner abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a practitioner understands mind affected by sense desire as mind affected by sense desire and mind unaffected by sense-desire as mind unaffected by sense-desire. They understand mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. They understand mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. There's a little bit of repetition in the sutras. It was from an oral tradition. So basically what this is saying is that whatever the state of the mind, heart is, we contemplate. They use the word contemplate. We would say that we we investigate, we're with. Whether it's the mind full of craving and lust and wanting or the mind that's free of that. Maybe the mind then that is calm or loving. 
the mind that's affected by hate and aversion and ill will and anger and irritation and the mind that's freed of that, calm or loving, spacious, compassionate. The mind affected by delusion, ignorance, not understanding, or the mind free of that, the mind that understands. And this very connection with the mind and heart as they are is what frees it, not your wishes to change it. So you don't have to exile any of that. I'll give a little example. So this morning I woke up and um, checked the weather for the next few days, and I noticed that it was going to be pretty high humidity. And I don't like humidity. It makes me tired, and it looked like pretty much high humidity through Sunday. And so I started this whole drama in my mind. I, I was like, oh, it makes me tired. I have to teach. I don't want to be tired. I don't like it. And then mindfulness kicked in. It was like, um, hello, Rebecca. <laughs> Could we get interested in what's going on here? And so I was like, oh. And, and mindfulness was like, what's going on right now? And I was like, oh, it's the mind affected by aversion, hating, not liking. And I noticed that it was all a story that my mind was making up, right, about how it was going to be. So unpleasant thoughts, creating aversion. And then I felt my body as it was right then, and the humidity was actually kind of pleasant. And it was cool, it wasn't hot. It was like, the humidity was a little bit like a cocoon. It's kind of soft, right? I was like, oh. (laughs) So, So what we see is that I was caught in some drama in my mind, in aversion. The mind was affected by aversion. I wasn't aware, and I was making up all these stories. Drama. And then mindfulness arrested that process. It was like mindfulness, like, what's happening? Oh, aversion. Versions like this. Oh, unpleasant thoughts. Oh, what's really happening? It's great. <laughs> so mindfulness gives like a pause and some space for freedom to happen, for transformation to happen. I know that was a small example, but we can start small. I'm sure you've had little dramas like that all day long or something. Well, maybe you're not an aversive type. Maybe you've had, <laughs> you know, wanting dramas all day long. But some dramas you've probably had, you know. It's like mindfulness gives a little space for being curious and interested and chance for change. My friend um, Temple sent me this, a link. He's a a meditation teacher at Spirit Rock, and um, he sent me this link for a little video of a... um, of a four-year-old girl, and, and she seems to be about four, and she's crying. She's, she's uh, talking to her mom, and she's, she's crying. She's like, I want waffles. And her mom's like, well, you know, we had waffles for dinner last night. We had waffles for breakfast. We're not having waffles tonight. And she's like, but I want waffles. And she's really upset. She's crying. She's like, I can't stop thinking about waffles. And then she's like, why can't I stop thinking about waffles? <laughs> really kind of distraught, right? I love that question. 
why can't I stop thinking about waffles? And um, Temple's so funny. He posts this on Facebook, and then he writes underneath, she's about to have a real breakthrough with craving. <laughs> because, okay, so really, what, what, is, what is craving like? Like, she, she's got it down, you know? Like, craving is... Our focus gets totally narrow, right? We, one thing, that's all we can think about when we want something, right? <laughs> like that. And um, we feel helpless to stop it, right? It's <laughs> And then, um, you know, if you carry it far enough with craving, I think with any kind of afflictive emotion, if you carry it far enough, the end is I'm going to die. So it's like if I don't have waffles, I'm going to die. Like, that's, that's how it feels <laughs> if you look at it. Obviously, we know we're not going to die. But when we're under the influence, <laughs> under the influence of craving, it's like, i got to have waffles or, you know, it's over for me. <laughs> and so we can be interested in that. And it's really helpful to know that. But not to know it as a conceptual thought, is to see our own minds do it. We've all had waffle mind. We've all done. We've all done this, you know. And it's and it's like so. We start to understand our own minds intimately. This is intimacy. And then eventually, you know, we're in the middle of like, why can't I have waffles? I really want waffles. And then, like mindfulness says, you know what? You're gonna live without waffles. And um, and you believe it. Not the first time, probably. No, the first time you argued, you were like, no, i got to have waffles. But, but, it's, but with mindfulness and this intimacy, you start to learn. You start to see, oh, craving actually. You watch craving arise, and then you watch that actually it can go away. And you didn't have any waffles, and you survived. That's good to know. This is stress reduction. <laughs> so we start to really, this is this intimacy with the mind and heart. And then this, so we're, we're mindful not just of, by the way, not just of craving and aversion. We can also be mindful of, of joy and, and loving kindness and compassion. So these emotions, when they arise, we're mindful of them. In fact, tonight we'll do a, a loving kindness practice to really, like, really be mindful of loving kindness. And mindfulness, while it arrests unhelpful, afflictive emotions, it supports wholesome ones, helpful ones. It's amazing that way. So we, so when we have a moment of calm, maybe, you know, I've talked about challenges, maybe you've had some nice moments of calm today and rest. It's like you bring mindfulness to that. Oh, this is what calm feels like. This is what peace feels like. And, and, and you really get to know that. Oh, the body feels light and uncontracted. The mind is quiet. There is a sense of um, expansiveness and spaciousness. So you get to know that, and, and the mindfulness supports that. Intimate with all of this human experience.
So the fourth one I've touched on a little bit and I'm not going to talk about too much. The fourth one, for you Buddhist geeks, you already know this, um, the fourth one has this kind of different feel to it. And it's, uh, you know, so we have the first one of the body, connecting with the body, and then connecting with feeling tone, and then connecting with the mind and heart. The fourth one is more like um, different ways of organizing our understanding. It appears to have a lot of categories, but what I have read from um, people who've done contextual analysis, there's only really two categories in, in the fourth foundation that um, are in all versions of this sutra, and that's um, the hindrances and the factors of awakening. The hindrances are um, these challenging states of mind that arise in meditation, Compassion, craving, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Some of you, most of you probably had all five today. Sometimes you get them all at one time. We call that a multiple hindrance attack. (laughs) You really want something, you can't have it, so you feel aversive, and then you get restless, and then you wear yourself out, and you're tired, and then you go like, what am I doing here? (laughs) you've managed to cover all five. (laughs) And the factors of awakening are the beautiful states of mind of of, um, investigation and joyous interest and uh, energy and concentration and tranquility and equanimity. So basically the fourth foundation is kind of like understanding what supports these beautiful states of mind and understanding what discourages the unwholesome states of mind. Understanding um, how they both arise. Mindfulness is key. We'll just leave it at that for tonight, for today, this afternoon. Mindfulness supporting the the wholesome and helpful states of mind and discouraging the unhelpful states of mind without you having to add on anything extra such as I got to keep this beautiful state of mind and I have to get rid of this aversive state of mind. No, that's different. You just get to be with what's happening and let mindfulness do the rest of the work. It will. It's, it's a great uh, workhorse. <laughs> So basically, summarizing the four foundations, it's that we get to use um, our own experience, our own experience of being human. We connect with it and use it. That's not exactly right, but you could say that. You could say that we use it um, to teach us the way life is, to teach us um, about stress and to teach us about freedom. Yeah, we could say it that way. Our own experience, just as it is, is all we need. You don't need to be somebody different. You don't need to have a different body. You don't need to have a different mind. You don't need to have a different heart. You don't need to have a different experience. Because all of it will teach you. All of it. Whatever it is. It will teach you will teach us where we get caught, 
where we limit our full humanity, our full spaciousness of heart and mind. And it will teach us how to um, embrace our full humanity and how to allow, you could say, the fullness of our hearts and our minds. So keep clocking in, my friends. Keep sowing seeds of mindfulness. Keep watering them. Have faith as we journey together. Let's sit for one minute and then we'll chant. So we can let the word settle float away, don't need to hold on to them. They will come back as needed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.